Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders, brought to you by Wavelength. Since 2008, Wavelength has taken over 2,000 leaders, physically and digitally, inside the boardrooms and shop floors of some of the world's most admired, progressive and successful organizations, and hosted in-depth conversations with highly accomplished leaders from the world of business and beyond. We've run programs in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe, going inside iconic organizations such as Apple, Alibaba, Netflix, Lego, and the Aravind iCare system. I'm Adrian Simpson, co-founder of Wavelength, and in this episode, we're going to learn how to innovate like Lego. Joining me is David Graham, who held a number of key innovation roles with Lego between 2010 and 2019, including senior innovation and marketing director of their Future Lab, established to invent the future of play, and culminating in a role as head of ventures. Since leaving Lego, David is the founder of Diplomatic Rebels, which is unequivocally one of the best brand names I've heard in many years. In this podcast, we're going to focus on how the large incumbent organizations within Lego's case, 90 years of history and legacy processes and systems innovate to remain relevant. And in particular, how do they develop and critically commercialize bold new products and services that sit outside of the core. So David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure. So David, uh, I'm going to, um, in a moment, you know, delve into the Lego story. But, but before that, uh, the, the question that's begging to be asked is, is what on earth is a diplomatic rebel? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, the one I, I love to answer. Actually, you know, as you alluded to, I spent my entire career in large corporations. Actually, for 17 years, I've been also in the uh, aviation business. I've been in the wind power business <clears throat> and, of course, in the play business but always in roles where I was sort of driving and leading, especially radical innovation. That means I've been sort of trying to pull the super tanger in a new direction and, uh, and really been what you could call an intrapreneur. So a little like an entrepreneur, but someone who works inside a big global, trying to be nimble, agile, moving things in a, in a huge super tanger. And to be honest, it's really, really hard work. Actually, it's so hard work that, that, in my experience, typically two things happens to entrepreneurs. Either they give up and do as they're told, you know, just follow your job description, right? <laughs> and when, you know, things can't go wrong or they burn out and leave simply because they bang their head too many times into walls trying to make things happen. And lately what I've seen also is that the new generations, the millennials and Gen Cs, they don't even want to get started inside these corporates, right? They don't want to get stuck in a silo somewhere. So through that many years of, of hard work, you know, with many failures, um, a few successes that's typically claimed by other people, I realized, well, there's actually a, a trick to the trade. You know, there's, there's ways that you could go about being an entrepreneur, driving radical innovation in a large corporate that not only makes you survive, but also thrive as a corporate innovator. And, uh, you know, as the name Diplomatic Rebels alludes to, it's really about finding the balance between being the rebel, which is, you know, the person that's curious, that's asking why, you know, asking all the, the you know, the dangerous questions in, in, to, the, to the executive committee, right? And, and also the one that's really driving change, understanding what's, what's changing in the world. But at the same time, you need to balance that with the, with the diplomatic skills, you know, the ability to navigate the big corporate ecosystem, leverage its powers, understand its politics, and, and, and survive that, but also use it as a force of power. And, um, and therefore, I founded Diplomatic Rebels, both to help individuals such as myself and, and others that are working in large corporates with innovation to learn these tricks. Uh, and to figure out what are the ways, what are the behaviors, what are the tools you need to be successful but also to help big corporates actually create the space and the culture for entrepreneurs, because they're, they're going to be highly dependent on entrepreneurs in the future. I believe these are actually the few, the future heroes in large corporates is those that are able to, to handle ambiguity and handle, you know, all the uncertainty and the risk associated with driving radical innovation, with exploring new territory, but at the same time is willing to do that 
inside a large corporate ecosystem. Brilliant. I, I absolutely love that, David. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, brand, a great title, and I totally uh, endorse your view for, for, for large corporates to have that people that fulfill that role with inside them. And, uh, you know, I want to come back to that, actually. I want to dig a little bit deeper um, uh, later on into sort of, you know, your top tips around, you know, how you can help diplomatic rebels and uh, corporate entrepreneurs uh, excel. But um, before we could do that, I wanted to kind of, you know, we've, with this podcast, we've kind of, you know, told it, you know, how to innovate like Lego. And, and I'd love just to kind of rewind the clock a little bit and say, you know, um, obviously today, you know, Lego has a, a legendary reputation for being, you know, one of the world's most admired brands, uh, which had, you know, many record years. Um, and I think in 2017, actually, it was voted the most powerful brand in the world. Um, and I, but I know that wasn't always the case. Um, so I'd love you to take us almost um, take us back to the time when Lego, you know, lost its way, right? And 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 uh, perhaps you could even give us some examples of, you know, um, you know, just how far off it's it, it's it sort of its its core purpose had had it, had it really drifted. So uh, yeah, take us back in time a little bit. Absolutely, and it's it's quite a remarkable um, story actually because. As as many of you probably know, Lego is a is a family-owned business, and um, it was founded by by actually a carpenter in the rural area of Denmark, in a small town called Billund, where it's actually still headquartered today. And now it's on the fourth generation of the family. But um, so so they built up the company, and and especially through the 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 seventies and eighties, the company really grew big. They uh, they sort of invented the Lego brick back in nineteen fifty eight. And, and has really sort of broadened that out uh, to become a global big brand. But in the 90s, the company started to struggle a little bit. And actually what happened was that every second year, it was losing money. It still had a decent top line, but there were problems in, in being profitable, in hitting the right type of experiences at the right time. So uh, the company pulled in uh, a number of consultants and advisors and, and some of them said, well, guys, you are sort of stuck with just this, you know, brick system. And also it's, it's sort of a dumb piece of plastic, right? Um, why don't you do more what the competitors are doing at the time, which is more mechanical toys, which is more action figures and, and generally just diversify the brand into other areas. You know, the, the legal brand was pretty strong back then even. So, you know, you can probably sell a bunch of other stuff and it sounded right. So, so the family said, okay, let's, let's, let's start diversifying. Let's invest in other areas. And they launched a bunch of things. Um, and, and so a couple of examples of this, of course, you all know the theme parks. So they actually started that up, but they invested heavily into it. And, um, and the problem that then be became evident was that, you know, they weren't very skilled at running theme parks. So, so they started depleting the cash reserves. So, um, so what, what happened was, that the company sort of lost its way. It, it, it didn't really understand what is the core DNA of, of, of us as a company. And, and they, they more or less sort of discontinued the brick system. And uh, especially uh, Lego City, which is one of the biggest product lines they have, was actually discontinued at the time. Now today, it's more than 2% of the total um, toy market uh, globally. And, and so, there was really a lack of understanding of what is it that makes Lego a strong brand. So tell us, you know, what, what did Lego do to turn itself around? So it's, it's clearly, it's lost its way, right? It's diversified into theme parks, diversified into food. It's, it's got, I think it's got clothing lines. I mean, it, it clearly just lost its purpose. So tell us, take us through, um, you know, what, what was the process? Uh, I think indeed you, you, you've um, uh, previously referred to kind of almost like the back to the brick strategy. Totally. So it actually became quite serious. The company almost went bankrupt and it was so close that many of the banks called it and said, you know, you lost it to the family and, you know, there is no going back. Luckily, the, the third generation at the time of the family said, you know, I can't let this go. So they threw in all their, their own cash and saved it on the brink of bankruptcy and, and realized you know, we need to get back to what is actually the core essence of a Lego experience. Mm -hmm. And and said, so, you know, we need to get back to the brick and stick to that and understand the very purpose of, of the company. And, um, and, you know, what was lost a little in those years was, you know, the, the essence of what Lego, a Lego product does. And it is really to encourage creativity 
and playfulness. It is to empower the users to um, create their own experiences. So understanding that underlying DNA of saying that the bricks are not just toys, it's actually a system. It's a system that encourages and empowers the users to co-create, to build on top of, to break the rules, break the instructions and create your own things. And, and, and when moving away from that, the customers lost sight of what is Lego really about? They couldn't really understand anymore the value of it. And, um, and secondly, the company also realized we're actually good at some things, but not everything. And, and at the time, the company had a strong belief that, you know, when we do something, we do it ourselves and we do it sort of big bang mode, meaning we invest heavily into things. Um, so they realized, okay, maybe we should rely more on partnerships, you know, understand our own core capabilities and then really leverage other partners where they have strong capabilities. So um, out of that, they strengthened the relationship with Warner Brothers um, and other big partners in creating new um, experiences. And I believe the likes of the, of the theme park business, they actually joint ventured it with, with likes of Melon Entertainment. Is that correct? So they Exactly. They actually initially sold it off um, also to save the company. But now, uh, now they, uh, and, and had still, still um, some minority share, now they re reacquired it uh, back again as they have sort of fully recovered. Am I correct? Was the strategy referred to as back to the bricks? I think it was, you know, I, I actually wasn't around just in those uh, years at that early stage, but, um, but it definitely was the spirit of it. The spirit was, let's stick to the brick. Let's really focus in on our core capability, core business, but then innovate from there, right? So it was not like this is the end of innovation or diversification, but let's, let's start from a very strong starting point in that system. And everything we do should be anchored in that system, which Lego also refers to as system and play. That means that everything we do should somehow be connected to what we already done. And when customers buy new products and new services, it should be able to function with what they already have, even, even what you know, the parents have on their addict from that when they were a child. Um, and, and that's the beauty of Lego today, right? It all fits together. I love one of the things I've observed over the years is is when companies lose their way and actually how themselves get themselves back on track and they almost like the 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 the, the go back to basics. I, I remember I had the privilege of visiting actually McDonald's uh, many years ago in the late 1990s, early 2000s when they'd just completed a phenomenal turnaround and. Um, they talked about basically their realization that they'd quote unquote taken their eyes off the fries, and uh, in the in the growth diversification of, of McDonald's, you know, globally, and and they had to go back to the absolute core basics of you know, you know, good food, uh, you know, cooked well, uh, speedy delivery, efficiency, which was the essence of what had made them successful in the first time. You know, you talk about kind of the essence of the of the Lego turnaround, kind of being back to the bricks. I was on a call with a with a very senior leader at Harley Davidson the other week. And he talked about, you know, he said, you know, their big lesson, because Harley's just itself gone through a massive turnaround. They said, you know, do less. When things aren't going right, do less. That's their major thing. It's so easy just to get, uh, take your, your, your eyes off the main thing, you know, really interesting. So, you know, so you, you're essentially in the, in the transformation of the business, they've kind of got this ethos of back to the brick. You've, they've understand their core capabilities. They've partnered with um, other external organizations like Merlin Entertainment, who are better at running theme parks than they are. Um, I also think they, the purpose, talk about the purpose of Lego. Was there a point at which in that turnaround, they really looked at their core purpose and reimagined it? Yeah, so they, they sort of came up with a, with a formulation saying, you know, we are here to inspire and develop the builders of tomorrow. And, um, and that was sort of to capture the essence of, Whenever Lego does a new product, a new innovation, what should it ultimately do? And this means it should be able to inspire and develop, um, you know, creative confidence and ability with the users. And so that became a very good guideline for whenever we were running an innovation project, you know, we could always ask ourselves, so how is this inspiring and developing the builders of tomorrow? How is this empowering creative confidence and ability? Because if it's not, we shouldn't do it. Even though we might be able to make it commercially successful, we can probably sell it. You know, the brand is strong, but we shouldn't. 
it's going to, you know, be counterproductive. It's going to be very short-term thinking. And I think there's a lesson in this is that, you know, you need to be very articulate about what it is this purpose is, because you can't just assume that the whole organization is going to, you know, uh, keep their eyes on this all the time. So for leaders in big companies, it's about constantly being the advocate of, you know, what is the purpose? What is the essence? And when looking at new initiatives, be, you know, be the role model for that. Um, that, that is where, you know, there's a strong role for the C-suite in driving innovation. I couldn't agree more. And I think the other thing, my observation of the, the, uh, of great purposes is also that they, when they're articulated well, not only do they provide a, a true north for your organization, as you say, you know, uh, does, do, does it fit with, um, to inspire and develop the leaders of tomorrow? If it does press go, go ahead. And if it doesn't stop, but the other thing is, is I think that great purposes also appeal to the intrinsic motivation of employees and leaders. And I think, there's something wonderful about the language in that purpose. You know, you know, I frankly would get out of bed in the morning if my job was connected to inspiring and developing the leaders of tomorrow, you know, just a, um, the creators of tomorrow. So just, you know, really, you know, very clever. And I just, I love this idea actually of businesses um, repurposing itself, you know, to drive a, a new direction and perhaps even, you know, attract great talent. You mentioned at the, out, uh, the, the, the start of this uh podcast about you know how big corporates perhaps may be struggling in some instances to attract the diplomatic rebels of tomorrow um have you got any other examples of organizations that have done this uh, that have actually also looked to you know got themselves in perhaps a little bit of trouble or or just sort of plateaued and actually reinvented their purpose to give themselves a new direction a new sense of momentum sure yeah so i'm now in my new capacity through diplomatic rebels i'm working with other large multinationals in, in helping them um, both find their, their purpose, but also really execute innovation efficiently. And one of those companies is, uh, is uh, one of the world's largest, or actually the, world, the world's largest pump manufacturer called Grundfos, a Danish company as well. And they've been doing pumps also for the last 60, 70 years. And, uh, and uh, of course, you know, excellent at creating pumps, but pumps is becoming, you know, a high, highly marginalized um, product and, um, and, and then they started to really look at, but, but if we look beyond the pump, what is it really that it does? Well, it transports water. It transports water in buildings and you know, facilities, in homes, everywhere in the world, you can probably find that, you know, a Gunfas pump somewhere. And, um, and so they started thinking, well, what is, what is really the essence of the value we're creating is, is bringing water from A to C. But what if we could also treat that water? What if we could make that water more intelligent in the way that it's being pumped? So the transformation they're going through is from being a pump manufacturer to now being the world leading sort of water treatment uh, company and provider, um, which of course also for all the employees and their partners is, is, a, is a massive change in like, okay, we are making pumps because you can sell them at a profit to we are providing the world with with water and maybe cleaner water or a purified water and um and so so that's that's a huge change for for such a company and it's impressive to see the the success that they have so far in making this transition also helped by a ceo that's been really good at telling the stories of of why the shift is necessary and 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 what the world will look like when when Grunfuss has made this shift um, so, so uh, you know, a very inspirational uh, case, and another company I'm working with is IKEA, and um, and they also uh, they're also making a big transition towards looking at you know we are making furniture for the many people to saying how how might we actually empower our users to be co-creators um, together with us. So it's it's not just about us providing finalized furniture, but it's about them empowering the users to to co-create, meaning also giving the, the furniture a second life, being more circular in their approach and, um, and enabling uh, you know, furniture to return back to Ikea or to be repurposed with the users. And, um, and so, so there's a number of companies now waking up to the fact that you know, if we touch upon what actually lies further down the line and the value that we are creating, there's a, a real strong purpose that can create a lot of passion, not only among employees, but actually among 
customers and partners alike in, in their total ecosystem. I agree. And I, I love, you've touched upon IKEA. We're very fortunately, we've, we're actually, um, we have a session with Jesper Rodin uh, later in this year planned. And I know that who's the CEO of IKEA. And, you know, I love his mantra that sustainability is a new business plan. Um, you know, literally as, as clear as that. And some of the very clever initiatives uh, that they're doing, like sort of buy back uh, Fridays rather than Black Fridays, in where they, you want people just to buy more. They're actually saying, no, we'll buy back your own furniture. Clever flip of, 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 of some uh, contemporary sort of marketing parlance that, that really drives to this kind of new purpose and belief that sustainability is the new business model. So just going back to, to Lego, um, they, they've, they've reimagined their purpose. They understand their core capabilities. I just love to talk a little bit about like, what else they did in order to innovate, you know, really talk about kind of the, the creation of the future lab. But just perhaps before I did then actually as well, I wanted to maybe get your view on, you know, what were the sort of, I suppose, the, the threats and the opportunities to Lego around the creation of this future lab. I'm thinking about, you know, what kind of technological disruptions uh, could you see coming around toys? I'm thinking about sort of AI, robotics, that kind of stuff. I just love to... You know, think about you know what what how did Lego see you know the the, the change to its marketplace potentially in both a, a negative way things that could disrupt it or therefore things that could take it to the next level and hence the need to create a kind of a disruptive innovation unit like the Future Lab. Yeah, because uh, you can actually say yeah the the company sort of realized it needs to stick to its brick and its core capabilities. But is that really enough? You know, are they then secure for the rest of time? And the answer is clearly no. And, and I guess that, that counts for all companies. You can't just stick to your core capabilities. You can't just stick to your existing product portfolio. You need to constantly involve it. And so in, in the toy industry, it's, it's many of the usual suspects that are, that are challenging that as well. Because what happens when artificial intelligence starts empowering the toy so they can actually learn and think based on the interaction with the child. And then if you add robotics, now you can have toys that actually move and behave in the way that the child would imagine them to. And then if you add voice and sound, now the child can actually have a meaningful conversation with the toys, you know, one where it's constantly evolving based on the interaction. And if you then add internet of things and you connect all the toys, now the toys can actually be playing together. And when the child leaves the bedroom, you know, the toys will still be playing. It'll be like Toy Story coming to life, right? And if you then on top of that add virtual reality or mixed reality, now you can empower the child to see the stuff that they imagine happening right in front of them, but in the real physical world. All these things are amazing, right? And they can clearly do amazing things for empowering creativity. But, but you know, there's also a risk that it does the opposite, right? There's also a risk that it pacifies kids, that it removes the need for creativity because everything is just so amazing. So there's a responsibility for a company like, like Lego or any other company both, of course, not to get disrupted by these technologies, but also to take a lead on how should these technology be leveraged by us in a meaningful way where we are still true to our purpose, where we don't again end up, you know, being derailed from, from what it is that we actually want to do and the value that we want to create. So, um, so for that reason, um, after the crisis, the company still realized mm, we can't just stop innovating. We can't just stop developing new things. So let's establish um, an, an innovation lab, an innovation capability, but sort of building on best practice for this. So the, the way that the company had done things up to the crisis was in this big bang mode, meaning when they had an idea, they developed it, and then they launched it full scale in all markets. And that's high risk, right? Especially when you're moving into new territory. So this new lab had a different uh, way of working where it was really about being lean and agile and experimenting with things. It was called the Future Lab. And we had a purpose and remit basically to invent the future of play. So uh, that was an amazing task to get, right? Who, who wouldn't want that? But, um, but also a tall order, right? You know, what is the future of play? And of course, in the context of the Lego mission and values and, and DNA, you know, how do, we, how do we expand the system but leveraging uh, new technologies and digitalization. And we, we sort of said, let's not replace the bricks with this, but let's enhance them with this. So there was a big mental difference also from prior to the crisis, where it was like, let's start doing new stuff and, and you know, forget the old. Um, but here it was more like expand from the core, innovate from the core. 
And so you've got this lab, it's called the Future Lab. It's got a great remit to invent the future of play. Um, tell me about sort of, you know, just structurally, how did it work, right? So how many people sort of worked in it? Kind of what kind of people were they? Um, and, I, you know, just like, what what could you do? Could you, were you just allowed to experiment with concept or could you go completely to market? I'd just love to get a bit of a sense of tangibly and tactically, how did it, how did it work? Sure. So one of the challenges with having an innovation lab, and I think a lot of people that works with corporate innovation realize this, is that you know it's it's hard to do these things completely in isolation, and at the same time it's also hard to uh, be dependent on the existing system. So you need to find a balance between those two, not being too far removed from what's going on, not be too dependent on the existing system. So we started by building a, a highly sort of multidisciplinary team of about twenty people, and you know so we had designers of various different types. We had software engineers, hardware engineers, um, marketeers, project managers, um, even anthropologists to really be able to sort of have an end-to-end -end capability. And by that, I mean being able to take things from the very early research and understanding of a new field all the way into the market as, a, as a basically a finished product ready for scaling. So I'm getting a sense that you've got kind of the mothership, right? The mothership is basically essentially doing business as usual. Uh, and therefore, the, the role and the remit of the future group is almost to do business as unusual, right? To take you into different areas. And I love the fact that you could go from just concept to, to execution. But again, how did that work? So you've got, you know, an idea for a great new product, but maybe you haven't tested the marketplace yet. You don't want to go big bangs. You don't want to stop the mothership and, and you know, produce a million of these new units. So how did you just like manage if you wanted to make a small run of something, you know, you wanted just to try something in the marketplace, how small could you actually go in terms of doing proof of concept live in the marketplace? Yeah, we, we actually ended up being able to do it, you know, very, very small and, and quite fast because we could do it independently. We even had uh, what we call the concept factory, which was like a small part of the factory unit in Bill and near to the headquarters, where we could uh, even do our own injection molding. So we could we could produce our own bricks, we could package them, um, we could design our own packaging. Um, so we had like you know a fab lab <clears throat> that was able to basically produce anything that we needed, but to the quality level of a finalized product. And this was important because we needed to be able to pilot these in a real live market situation and actually understand how, how a user users is using this and you know, how, is it, how is it doing um, on the shelf. And um, <clears throat> so having this ability and not having to you know, be stuck in the, in the pipeline of the big system was a huge advantage and enabled us to launch a lot of pilots quite quickly, as well as iterate on them once they were launched. We could quickly do something new, change it, pull it back. We would typically go out and partner with the, with the retailers that we would um, test the things in. So they became you know, a partner in crime and really would understand the need for exploring this territory and could also iterate together with us. I love it. And, and talk about some of the areas that the Lego Future Group would, would look at for inspiration and insight and perhaps give us a, a tangible example. I think, if I'm correct, from years go by uh, in previous conversations, you mentioned you would look at places like Etsy. And I think, you know, the, one of your, your real success stories was around um, was architecture. Could you just tell us a little bit more about, say, where would you look and, and give us a, a tangible example of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a product that you created that, that really, you know, uh, helped take the business in a new direction? Sure. So we would typically look, you know, at new technologies, new business models, new target audiences. And so one of the examples was, was actually looking at new target audiences where we were seeing an increased amount of activity among adults still relating to Lego bricks. And the way that we discovered this, among other ways, was actually when searching on Etsy, which is sort of the, the largest um, site marketplace for homemade products that you know you're creating yourself but you're selling them to other users and when we google lego there there were like thousands and thousands of products and services clearly looking like lego but made by fans made by other consumers 
being sold in the market. And so that was quite a surprise. You know, we were like, wait a minute. And I remember one of my first meetings around this, what I see with legal, you know, <laughs> saying, so what do we do? Because clearly much of this was infringing the brand in, in one form or the other. And they said, well, we could probably do something about it, but it's going to take like, you know, 500 lawyers and five years. And, and we'll most likely be killing our brand because these are our biggest fans, right? They are adults, yes, but they are actually, many of them are experts. You know, I think there's more than 10,000 PhDs in the, um, in the adult fan community at Lego. And I'm guessing sort of half of NASA is, is, is part of that, right? So brilliant, talented people, a lot of designers, a lot of creative people. And, then, and so one of, the, one of those that we found in there, because then we decided, okay, if we can't beat them. Let's join them. You know, how can we support these guys? And then one of them was actually an architect. And, um, and he had not really done anything in, in terms of using his, um, his education towards uh, you know, real buildings. But he really spent all his time creating uh, buildings made out of Lego. And he did them in, in, in sort of big models of famous buildings that he was selling to big corporates to have in their hallways or to events around the world. And, um, and so, but he, he actually had an idea uh, that we called there of saying, what if we were making these models into small miniature um, models that could fit inside a box that we could actually sell? And he pitched that idea to us. And, and at the time, there was sort of a very lukewarm uh, uh, feeling in the top management regarding these uh, adult fans. They sort of had a typical, you know, view on those as being like, well, aren't they sort of 35-year-old males, single, living in the mom's basement? You know, like the real, the real geeks and nerds. Um, now we all know that they're sort of the, the billionaires of tomorrow, right? But we also knew, well, there's there's this super professional audience out there that are that are interested in design and architecture. So, but we had to say to this guy, you know, well, it's a great idea, but um, we can't do it. There just isn't enough um, support inside the company, but why don't you do it? And we will provide you with some seed capital, you know, just around $25,000 or so was sort of the cap that we would give um, to an entrepreneur like that and say, you know, you build it, we support you. So he actually created um, the, the packaging for the first test in his own apartment. And there's some from the team was there to help him put it together. At the time, it didn't have a Lego logo on because we, we couldn't do that initially. We had to test it completely anonymized to Lego. But of course, it had the Lego bricks in it that we provided to him. And then he tested it um, in a couple of cities. It turned out to be highly uh, popular, especially around High Street. You know, this would be something that could really go well with other top brands. So uh, over the time, we got permission to then launching it as a product line. But we were actually sitting with it in the lab for four or five years and really scaled it before it was ready to move on to the core business. Again, because it was, it was touching a lot of new aspects. It was new target audience. It was also new distribution partners and distribution model. And, uh, and so there was a number of things that demanded the, the core machinery to re-gear to be able to, to manage and support it. Really interesting. And when, so to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how, how does that transition work, right? So you've now got a product, it's three, four, five years old, right? And, and uh, you, you know, you've kept it within the lab. How did it interface with, with the mothership to make sure that you weren't seen as this kind of isolated skunk works that was just, you know, full of cool people doing their own thing um, and, and, and stuff that wasn't related to the core business that was never going to be related? Sure, yeah, and, and you're touching on what is probably one of the most difficult things uh, being a corporate innovator is bringing stuff that you developed maybe slightly in isolation up to a certain level, now handing it over to the existing core business for them to scale it. And typically they won't have the capabilities to do it. They won't have the right mindset. They won't even be interested because it's not invented here, right? So how do you make sure that as you, as you develop your things from even the very early stages that you're able to, um, to build that new mindset or those new capabilities in the core in the core business. So initially we didn't do a very good job of that. And you can say architecture, we probably sat with it for way too long before it was handed over. But over time we developed um, different uh, tips and tricks on how to do it. And 
one of the important things was to get, you know, some ambassadors on board very early, you know, realizing that this, if this is a success, we might hand it over to this area of the business or this area. So um, getting those on board, and that's about both creating a high degree of transparency, making sure that, you know, those people were invited in very early, that it would be all right that if they would sort of steal with pride from what we were doing. So one of the things we did was to start having demo days where these departments could come down and see what we are cooking up, you know, see the Ocri prototypes, tinker with them, start to understand. Initially, they would be like conservative and say, hmm, that doesn't look like anything. It's not going anywhere. But over time, because of, you know, them spending more and more time with it, you know, it's settling with them that this, this might actually be interesting. It grew on them. And they started then to fall in love slowly with it. And over time, you would start listening to how they were articulating around it. And it became, instead of being, they are doing this, it was like, we, we are looking into this. And that's when you know they're starting to take ownership. And at the same time, we would make sure that, you know, the different C-level people that would be responsible for, for those relevant areas, that they were chosen to be ambassadors for these projects early on as well, so that they felt empowered and in the know and actually, you know, this about making the, the top leadership being in the know is quite important. They also want to be able to tell cool stories um, to their partners, to their colleagues. They want to feel like that they're not surprised by things they don't understand happening in the organization. So if you can spend some time and effort making sure that they are able to, you know, talk to this in a passionate way, then, then they will fall in love as well. It is. I, it's, it's interesting you've used the word love a few times. I think you, uh, we've chatted previously, you've used the sort of expression, you kind of metaphorically wrote love letters to the mothership to make sure that they were uh, really, really uh, in, involved. I mean, align with that, you know, so again, you, you know, you're a small team, you're focusing on the future of play, um, you know, but you, 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 you're specialists, but I guess you're having to call upon resources from the mothership in the development of some of these concepts. So, yeah, tell me about, you know, if you if you got to a point where actually you realized you needed to pull up on the resources of, of, of the mothership, you know, how again did you make sure those people felt, you know, recognized, rewarded as, and as part of the kind of the, the future group? Yeah, so it was, um, you know, one of, the, one of the tricks to the trade is also looking at the way that your project is evolving also as a type of a movement you know, something that's changing the organization. And therefore, you, you, you sort of need to build a tribe around this new initiative and really make sure that you invite people for various different occasions. So one, one good thing is to actually throw a lot of parties, you know, celebrate every milestone that is achieved, celebrate every, every launch, and, and really use any occasion to invite the bigger ecosystem around you to join and be part and get that sense of, this is not something they are doing and later on we have to deal with, this is something we're doing together. And, um, and so it's, it's also a lot about the soft factors, you know, of innovation, making sure that, that people feel you know, appreciated and included and, um, and that, they, you know, that they can see themselves becoming successful through what's happening here. And I think, did you indeed at one point make some little statues for some folks that just celebrated the occasion where they've been involved? Could you just remind me of that? Exactly. So one of the things we did, and, you know, I, I call this making others shine, but, which is very important as well. You know, you want to make sure that, that you always show appreciation. So on one of the projects, when we launched it, and it was quite successful, um, and we had sort of pulled favors from a number of people across the organization that had to, you know, pull a sick day or spend their evenings or weekends helping us because it was on top of their day job, right? And, um, and we knew, you know, if, if we do that too many times and then eventually they're going to say, well, guys, that's it. I can't do this anymore. So how, how could we, you know, sort of really celebrate their efforts? So um, actually this, um, this product that we launched was, um, was a quirky, fun character in the game. So it was a digital experience that had physical bricks along with it. And, um, and he was sort of a very fun, quirky character called George. And, um, and so what we did was that, because he could be built in Lego. So we would build him in Lego, put him on a small uh, sort of uh, pedestal, and then we would uh, gold spray him and, and sort of, 
you know, pretend that he was like the Oscar figure. And so we wrapped that golden, you know, figure very nicely in a box with very sweet letter from this guy, George, you know, saying, hey, thank you so much. You're awesome. Uh, thanks for the help. And we, at night, we would place these boxes at each of these people who had really helped us uh, getting this through. And so in the morning, when they came into the office, they found this, you know, package on the, on the desk. They would open it, find this Oscar statuette saying, you know, you are awesome from, uh, from George. And of course, they became very happy. But more importantly, they would take pictures of this and share it on the internet. And all of a sudden, you know, the word got around that, okay, these guys at Future Lab, they're really good at, at you know, celebrating and making other people shine. And, um, and that made much more come back, you know, to self, hey, how can I help? You know, it, it looks yeah. like it's awesome working for you guys. Mm -hmm. I love the concept of the human aspects of innovation, which you touched upon, which is, you know, yes, you may have a remit to invent the future of play. Yes, from the outside, you may look like, the cool unit you know, made up of, as you say, of sociologists and anthropologists and engineers and all that. But actually, you cannot survive in isolation. You can't thrive in isolation. And you absolutely have to interface with that mothership to bring them on board, to win their hearts, to win their minds. And the, the clever ways in which you did that through the demo days, through making sure the C-suite were involved, through the parties through the creation of the little toys the oscos you know really fo focusing on those as you say the kind of the, i think the much too frequently just not enough attention has been paid to those those areas in hindsight i mean you know uh, uh, any other secrets do you think that was a secret of of the future group's success like I was interested when you said, you know, you invested in architecture, it was $25,000, um, which is, you know, a tiny bit of seed capital, you know, did you keep it small? And did you think that was a, another really important part of the success of the future group that actually you were quite small and actually investing quite small amounts of money? Yeah. And it's, it's really about being that lean startup, right? And, and so if you, if you are to move quickly, if you are to um, really sort of, not not make things become too big it's about you know working in a way where you have the least amount of money least amount of time least amount of people and still get quick results and this is both about moving fast but it's also about not getting shut down right because if you if you splash the cash and if you if you're very expensive um it, it's it's quickly going to get to become a problem but also if you have too much cash you know all of a sudden you have too many people, too many steering committees, too many SVPs involved, and all of a sudden you have a project that's too big to fail. And they can be really devastating for an organization, right? Because they can havoc through that for years before they're shut down. And when they're finally shut down, it's typically very traumatic. And everybody will say, you know, let's never do that again. So instead it was really about keeping it as small, as nimble as possible, moving really fast, sort of pretending that the money we're spending is coming from our own account, you know? So let's make every dollar count. Absolutely. Again, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think this whole idea of keeping it small, keeping it nimble, you know, just get going. I remember a, a partner actually at, at IDEO uh, famously saying uh, on a wavelength program, you know, the future of the world is not invented on an Excel spreadsheet. Also that, the, the, you know, if you, over invest if you give a you know a million pounds to a to a to a project you know it just gets too much attention too many people are involved it becomes too big to fail i remember actually him telling a story about a corporate innovator uh in the us who who just seemed to be paralyzed actually by the the, the amount of money that she had at her disposal and only got going when basically the, the the ceo basically said right for every week you don't do something i'm going to remove a hundred thousand dollars from your budget yeah. <laughs> yeah but it's true it's true i actually i i worked with another company at some point that that you know were sort of you know, discovered that iot was going to be the big thing for them and so the the man who was put in, in the charge he got a budget of three billion dollars and, 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 you know, of course, yeah, it shows that as a company, we really want to do that. But when you get $3 billion and with it came like a thousand people, you, from day one, you have a project that's too big to fail, right? That's, that's so clear. It's going to make everybody, you know, either be too slow or be, be too scared of failing, to be honest, that they're not really going to experiment. So this is a super important point. Thank you. I, I, one of the things I'd love to touch upon is another, um, about you know how do you make these kind of corporate 
innovation units work. There's another um, great um, corporate entrepreneur uh, we know, Paul Campbell, um, who headed up innovation at the legendary W.L. Gorn Associates, the company behind Gore-Tex, um, and is now actually helping uh, BAT uh, to, to move out of um, tobacco. He you know, believes that, you know, that for corporate sort of innovation units to work, all the rules that apply to the mothership um, have to be deconstructed. Uh, you know, um, so you know, and so how the you know how they partner with external organisations, how they draw up legal contracts. You know, I just wondered if you if you if you agreed that sentiment. You know, you have to you know draw up a separate rules of engagement for corporate innovation labs. Um, did you do that at Lego? You know, and 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 uh, do you, do you believe with that sentiment? I absolutely believe it. And then we, we sort of learned it the hard way, actually, because many times, you know, the, the people that we would have most challenges with would be those that are hired to sort of uh, uphold the existing ways of working and, and the existing set of rules. Typically, that would be legal, it would be finance, it would be procurement and, and, and such support functions. So um, initially, we would sort of fight them. And, you know, try to escalate and all that. But, but to be honest, you're not going to win such battles. You're not, you know, that, that's, that's where you are the, the, the radical that's going to be sort of uh, rejected by the immune system. So rather we turned it around and said, okay, um, how, do we, how do we get these guys on our side? And we actually started by creating uh, hot disks in our lab and say, somehow we need to get these guys closer to us. So we said, okay, now we got a desk for legal, for procurement, for finance, for some of these other functions. Why don't you come and hunt this at us? You know, and initially it would only be the junior people that would come because they thought, wow, hanging out with these cool innovation guys, that, that sounds like really fun. And, but that was okay because they started picking up some interesting stories, some knowledge about what's going on. They would share that back in their own departments saying, hey, what I just learned from FutureMap. And the senior people got really interested and curious and saying, hey, that could actually be fun getting more in the know, also knowing what might hit us in the future. So they started showing up and then we started having some really serious conversations around that. Ultimately, it ended up being so that these different departments started creating their own small innovation labs. Basically just a few people, but that were tasked to develop sort of what's the future of legal contracts, what's the future of the financial business model, of, you know, financial modeling, what's the future of how we source and procure new things if it's startups that we're working with instead of other large multinationals. And, uh, and that became super helpful. So from being something, you know, someone that was really fighting us and trying to control us, they actually became some of our closest and, and most important allies. Fascinating, isn't it? Once again, you, you've really touched upon the human aspects of, of, of innovation, right? You know, just by including these key people in your story, by simply them sitting in your environment, picking up stories by osmosis, you know, you've actually, you know, you've involved them in your conversation. You've actually inspired them to the point where they've actually started to, as you say, create their own little mini innovation labs. Did it also enable them to start to actually adapt and flex the rules for you? So would, would legal then allow you to contract in a different way with startups or procurement to procure things a different way? Did it actually help achieve what you wanted, which was much less friction within the organization? Exactly. That's exactly what we did. And so, so each of them came up with a new framework for how do we work with these more experimental or more radical projects where it's in a test phase before it's in a real commercial phase, because that needs to be reflected in the way that you contract and the way that you model things. And, um, and so uh, over time, it actually um, it became so that it also started influencing how the rest of the company uh, were looking at some of the things, because to be honest, you know, it's not just enough that you build an innovation unit that's super flexible, that's able to move very fast. If over time you don't get the mothership to also become more agile, more able to adapt to new things. So ideally, you want to influence them as much as possible. And that started to happen then through this. Brilliant. So I mean, it all sounds a bit like Nirvana, right? That you, you just, it's all just success, success. But that cannot be true, right? So let's talk about failure. Right, so uh, I'm assuming in if you know if your remit is to invent the future of play and to 
try things at small scale and rapidly iterate, things must fail, right? So talk to me about failure. And, you know, did you, what was your process around failure? And did you ever look outside also of, of the lab to, to learn from others about, you know, uh, how they dealt with failure and how they learned from it? Sure. Yeah. So um, another of my, my sort of key points is that as an entrepreneur, you really need to be able to handle resistance and, and resistance, not only on your projects, but especially in times of, of where things are not working out. And it's going to be very easy for the rest of the organization to point the finger at you and say, see, it's not working. Um, it's, it's crap. And, um, but of course, the way that, you know, the whole mantra of working in this way means that you're going to fail nine out of 10 times. So, um, so we knew that was going to be a lot of pressure on the team and we could see it's hard for people to continue to experiment with new things that are failing and not burn out. So, um, so what we, we were doing, we were scouting for like, which other teams in the world are also facing, you know, these quite tough odds and, um, and have, you know, tough missions. And of course, we, uh, we started looking at Navy SEAL teams because they are also in a pretty tough deal, right? You know, if, if they're successful on a mission, nobody will hear about it because it's, it's secret. If they fail, it can be quite lethal, right? Of course, it's not as, as bad when you're a corporate innovator, but there's something about it. You know, you're going to fail a lot of times. And when you're finally successful, it's probably going to be, you know, the big, the big business units that are going to, are going to sort of claim the success because they're the ones scaling it. They're the one making it into a billion dollar business. You just sort of sold the seed, if you will. Um, and, and people tend to forget those people. So, um, so we had a meeting with some former Navy SEALs to understand how are they dealing with these tough odds and, and how are they processing it? And one of the things we learned was that after each mission, they would meet as a group to sort of really deal with and learn what happened on this mission. You know, so, sort of almost like group therapy where they could cry out on each, other, each other's shoulders, but, but more importantly, they could learn from what actually happened. You know, why did you do this? Why did that guy, uh, you know, act this way? What went well, what went wrong? So uh, we, we picked that up and say, okay, let's try to create a similar type of forum for our teams. And we created this safe house, you know, creating a safe house meeting that would then happen on a regular basis where you wouldn't be talking about how is this project going and status and reporting. We would be talking about what are we learning in the field? What's happening out there? What happens with these stakeholders? Why is the CFO on our neck constantly? And what are the things that we can change and do differently? And it sort of became like group therapy in a way because it was a very honest, safe environment where you could really be brutally honest about what was going on and how you were feeling, but without it backfiring on you. And I think, you know, building psychological safety for these teams is absolutely crucial. It's also a part, a part of creating legitimacy for that way of working. Because if you're, if you're never really appreciated in, in the sense that the rest of the organization is recognizing your effort, you're going to start to feel that what you're doing is wrong and the way that you're thinking is wrong. And, and you're going to lose confidence. One of your things I, I love, David, is just the fact that, you know, my, or again, my observations of successful leaders and successful innovation organizations is they, they look outside, right? Their heads up, they got their radar on and their antennae up as to, you know, where can we learn? You know, who else has done this before? And just the, the concept of, a, as you say, you know, you're a toy, although you're a global brand, you're a toy business at a rural part of, 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 of Denmark in Billund. And actually, you know, as you do, you'll go and talk to some former Navy SEALs about, you know, lessons in, 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 in how you deal with failure, you know, just, but, you know, what a great thing to, to do. And, the, you know, the tangible idea of the safe houses, I think just, um, you know, just, just brilliant. I'd love to, um, you know, move away now from Lego as we sort of conclude our podcast today. Uh, and talk about your experience of Diplomatic Rebels, which you founded a couple of years ago. Um, have you come across any other examples of um, the large incumbent organizations that have successfully, in your view, created um, innovation units? And, and just again, you know, one or two top tips on what is it that you think that's made them work? Yeah, so um, actually, I think there's a, there's a number of organizations that are now starting to become better at this. But for me, what is really the common denominator as the, as the most frequent sort of uh, 
blind spot for organizations is the, the soft factors of innovation, you know, the culture, the mindset. And, and one of the areas where that is often overlooked is that you need to spend a lot of time educating your top management. You know, you should not let them be in the dark about what innovation means and demands. And you should not assume that they know it. I mean, yes, they might've read the books, but, but there's, a, there's a big important aspect of saying, you know, you need to take these, these guys along on the journey and make sure that they feel constantly empowered and in the know and, and educated. And of course, do that in a very refined way because um, you can't also call them out as not knowing, as not being, you know, uh, knowledgeable enough. But so make sure you create a lot of, of situations, presentations, where you are actually helping them build their mindset um, in understanding. So, so that's one of the things and, and another that, I've, um, that I'm spending quite a lot of time on is to understand the innovation maturity level in an organization. Because different maturity levels will call for different types of setups. For instance, if you have a high degree of maturity in an organization, you can also have a high degree of autonomy because then there's a high degree of deliberation because the trust is high. Um, this, the C-suite will really understand what, what innovation demands and what it is, and they will be able to also push decisions down into the organization. Whereas if there's a David, low- can I, sorry, may, may I just, there's a fascinating point, but I just want to understand when you say about the innovation maturity of an organization, yeah. can you just be clear about what you mean by maturity? You're talking about the how old the organization is, how established innovation unit is, just, just, sure. just, just, for, just for clarity. Some of the key indicators for maturity is, as I said, you know, the understanding of the top leadership. How many of them does really understand innovation? You know, are they all old school or are some of them, you know, like the CEO of Grunfa, someone who's actually constantly speaking to it, constantly driving it from that person's own agenda, uh, you know, and able to tell strong stories. Another indicator is, is openness. How is the climate for openness? Are people freely sharing things across the organization? Transparency is very important. Another aspect is, is co-creation. Are you seeing that people are able to collaborate across units or is it very sort of heavily siloed? And I would even go to far to say, you know, playfulness. Are you, are you seeing that there's a sort of a playful spirit in the organization and people are like happy. And, you know, and as an example of that, besides Lego, of course, is also Google that I worked a lot with. And, um, and you find some of the same playfulness. People are actually allowed to explore and to sort of play their way into things. And it's wonderful to see, and it's very unusual to see because most organizations do not have that. So, so that for me is a high mm -hmm. level of maturity. And that's the indicators, you know, if there's a toxic environment where people are not open, they're not sharing, they're definitely not co-creating, then you're gonna use some different tools and you, you have to be less ambitious about your innovation effort. And you're gonna have to, you know, have a lot of patience understanding that this is gonna be a multi-year um, sort of cultural development. Um, of the organization before you're going to see some really, you know, fa fantastic innovations from that organization. I love that. So, you know, the, the critical element here is A, taking an assessment of the innovation maturity of the organization. B, making a, you know, an informed decision about where it's at and C, then uh, adopting a, an appropriate stance in innovation. So if you, as you say, in that model where you've got a organization where there is great to see a cynicism, there isn't a focus on innovation, there isn't a high level of maturity, trying to create a, a Lego future group to invent the future of that organization is just going to fail spectacularly, right? Because you're just talking a different language where you have to recalibrate uh, um, uh, your, your, your ambition and your time scale. Well, David, I mean, I think it's thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, uh, this conversation this afternoon. I think the, you know, great to finish on that sort of strategic note, but I just love throughout this whole, like this thrust of, how to innovate like Lego has really touched upon the critical human elements of the of the innovation uh, uh, 
processes and stories, which I think is so uh, overlooked. Um, you know, so thank you as everyone for listening. You know, it's been a, I say, a real pleasure to interview um, David today and get so many fantastic insights. And if you've enjoyed this uh, podcast, you know, please kindly like us on the platform of which you're listening uh, to it on. And if you'd like to keep up to date with Wavelength, uh, please go to www.wavelengthleadership.com. Thank you.